Oh, shall we? How's that? Okay? Good? Okay. Um, thank you very much. Apologize for the inconvenience of the move for those of you who've uh, had to rush over here, uh, but we did have a problem with, uh, with the booking. So um, I'd like to welcome you to this uh, DeCamp Bioethics Seminar. Um, I'm Peter Singer. I'm pleased to be here. I've been on leave most of the, the semester, but I'm very pleased to be here on this uh, particular occasion. And uh, I want to first introduce Professor Don Marquis from the University of Kansas, uh, who is going to speak on my views about uh, abortion and infanticide. Uh, Professor Marquis is the author of a very well-known and very often uh, reprinted article um, uh, that uh, is, I think, probably the, the best uh, defense of the anti-abortion position, of the, of the view that abortion is uh, normally a, a wrongful killing, uh, that I know, and certainly an article that I've used in, in my own teaching. Uh, nevertheless, having said that, as you'll see, it's, it's not a position that I myself accept, so um, we should have a, uh, an exchange. You're astonished at that. No, not quite, not quite. Okay, so uh, with that, the format will be Professor Marquis will speak for about half an hour, 35 minutes or so. Uh, I'll come up and maybe speak for a little bit less than that, and then we'll have time for questions and discussion, and we'll close around 6 o'clock. Professor Marquis, thank you. Thank you, Peter. I want to thank you for inviting me to this uh, seminar. I'm pleased to be here. Uh, I should say before I start that uh, I admire a lot of Peter Singer's work, and this the paper I'm going to read is, is primarily critical, uh, but you shouldn't get the sense that uh, I don't value his work and that I don't agree with much of it. I do agree with much of it, um, and I think he's on the right track about a lot of things, and I think that his work has combined um, the area of what we might call applied ethics with a, with a bit of theory in a very responsible way that, that I think is good for our profession. This paper was written for an anthology uh, entitled Singer Under Fire, and I was asked to contribute, and uh, Peter got some copies of the... Uh, I asked Peter what he had written lately on the subject and, and uh, to, so that he could refer to me to whatever he'd written about abortion and infanticide, and he was kind enough to respond and tell me, and then I sent him a copy of the paper. And um, So what you're getting is uh, an abbreviated version of the contribution to that anthology, uh, which will come out sometime or other. You know how it is with anthologies. <clears throat> Human beings, such as you and I, possess at least one property that makes killing us distinctively wrong or seriously wrong. And Peter Singer believes that because infants have no such property, infant infanticide is not always wrong. No infant is seriously wrong by being killed, on his view. Although, if an infant is wanted by others, infanticide could wrong others. Normal infants will almost always be wanted. Some handicapped infants are unwanted. In such cases, killing them is morally permissible. This view has engendered great interest and great hostility. Singer's views on infanticide are implied by his defense of abortion choice. Like infants, no fetus possesses a property that could make killing her seriously wrong. This view, when combined with the liberty rights of pregnant women, 
under rights abortion choice. Singer's views on abortion and infanticide are corollaries of the general account of the wrongness of killing. He has devoted many pages to arguments against the doctrine of the sanctity of human life. And here is an account of the sanctity of life doctrine that is as plausible as I can make it. Individuals like us have certain fundamental rights, such as the right to life, the right to liberty, and the right to have at least a minimal opportunity to flourish. Some have believed that we have these rights in virtue of being male, or in virtue of being Caucasian, or in virtue of belonging to a certain religion, or in virtue of our ethnicity. In developed countries, virtually everyone now thinks that such beliefs about our fundamental rights are incorrect. Instead, there is widespread agreement that we possess these fundamental human rights in virtue of our humanity. Hence, we have a center called the Center for Human Values. Thus, we call these rights human rights or basic human rights. The most basic human right is the right to life, for without life, no other human endeavor is possible. Therefore, unless exceptional circumstances obtain, it is wrong to kill a human being just because she is human. This doctrine implies that abortion is wrong, for human fetuses are organisms that are human. It also implies that infanticide is wrong. Peter Singer has rejected the sanctity of human life doctrine for two main reasons. First, he argues that it has implausible consequences. Suppose we hold the view that if humans have the right to life, then dependent human beings also have the right to a reasonable degree of care necessary to sustain their lives. The doctrine of the sanctity of human life, plus this reasonable view, seems to entail that we have an obligation to provide medical care to preserve the lives of anencephalic newborns, that is to say, uh, newborns, uh, the babies born without the neurological capacity for consciousness, and individuals in persistent vegetative states, such as Terry Schiavo. These consequences are very implausible. Indeed, they are so implausible that, as Singer has pointed out, even many of those who affirm the sanctity of human life doctrine are unwilling to accept them. Accordingly, the doctrine of the sanctity of human life is vulnerable to clear counterexamples. Second, Singer argues that the doctrine of the sanctity of human life rests upon a morally irrelevant consideration. Just as we reject sexism, because it rests on a biological but not morally relevant characteristic, and just as we reject racism, because it rests on a biological but not morally relevant characteristic, we should reject the doctrine of the sanctity of human life because it rests on a biological but not obviously morally relevant characteristic. What counts from a moral point of view are characteristics we often regard as exemplifying being fully human. These characteristics are mental characteristics that are typically associated with biological humanity. They are not identical to the property of being biologically human. Not all individuals who are biologically human possess these mental characteristics. And, for all we know, not all individuals who possess these mental characteristics are biologically human. Singer's rejection of the doctrine of the sanctity of human life is, in my view, clearly correct. Because the doctrine of the sanctity of human life, you may want to argue about this, because the doctrine of the sanctity of human life is clearly false, a re replacement for it is needed. The general idea behind Singer's account of the wrongness of killing is straightforward. Plainly, it is wrong to end the life of a standard human being. 
plainly, it is not wrong to end the life of a cabbage. Singer holds that the kinds of characteristics that seem to justify the difference are what Joseph Fletcher called indicators of humanhood. These indicators include self-awareness, self-control, a sense of the future, a sense of the past, a capacity to relate to others, concern for others, communication, and curiosity. All of these characteristics are mental. Singer wishes to call individuals who possess some or all of these characteristics persons. He believes that the mental characteristics central to being a person are rationality and self-consciousness. Fetuses are not persons. Accordingly, an account of the wrongness of killing in terms of persons rather than in terms of human beings will underwrite the permissibility of abortion. What Singer needs, as he realizes, is some general account of the wrongness of killing that explains why some mental characteristics are morally significant and non-mental biological characteristics are not. In the absence of such an account, justifying the wrongness of killing in terms of being a person is as arbitrary as a justification in terms of being a human being. The view that a person has the right to life in virtue of her preference for continuing to exist is Singer's favored account of the wrongness of killing. Singer is, like many utilitarians, suspicious of rights talk. When Singer says that an individual has a right to life, he means no more than it would be seriously wrong, ceteris paribus, to kill that individual because of a property of that individual. Singer has endorsed Michael Tooley's account of this preference-based view. The basic idea behind Tooley's view is that in general to violate someone's right to something is to frustrate her desire for that thing. Accordingly, to violate someone's right to life is to frustrate her desire to continue to live. One can have a desire for one's continued existence only if one possesses a concept of oneself as a continuing subject of experience. No fetus has a concept of herself as a continuing subject of experience. Therefore, no fetus desires to continue to exist. It follows that no fetus has the right to life. I'm just giving you Singer's argument. Because there is no basis for a fetal right to life that could override a woman's right to control her body, abortion is morally permissible. Singer has noted some difficulties, apparent difficulties with Thule's view, presumably a person who is asleep or temporarily unconscious but is not presently contemplating her future existence, much less desiring it. Surely a theory that permits killing sleeping people or temporarily unconscious people is subject to a far greater difficulty than a sanctity of life theory that obligates us to keep, us, to keep alive anencephalics or patients in persistent vegetative state. However, David Boonin has offered uh, a desire account of the wrongness of killing that appears to deal successfully with these difficulties. When I wake up in the morning, I do not have to learn everything that I believed the day before. I seem to have almost all of the same beliefs, concepts, and desires I had yesterday. This suggests that these mental items were retained in some form or other while I was asleep. Accordingly, when I was asleep, I possessed in some way the concept of myself as a continuing subject of experience. 
And when I was asleep in some clear sense, I desired to live. Boonin calls these desires dispositional as opposed to a current. A similar analysis for temporarily unconscious individuals seems reasonable. Accordingly, the Tutley Singer account of the right to life can be provided with resources for dealing with sleeping persons and with temporarily unconscious individuals. Singer's defense of abortion has implications for infanticide. Because an infant, like the fetus it was, lacks a concept of itself as a continuing subject of experience, it lacks the desire to continue to exist. Hence, it lacks the right to life. Because spatial location is morally irrelevant, the fact that this human being is no longer located inside its mother lacks moral importance. Singer has suggested that this view is much less shocking than it may seem. He points out that women will, in general, have far stronger reasons for having abortions than for killing their infants after they are delivered. Singer's view seems to be that if a pregnant woman does not want her child at all, then she will have an abortion. If she does not want her infant, then this will generally be because the infant is handicapped. If the infant has prospects for a normal life, then its parents will want to keep it. Otherwise, the fetus it was would have been aborted. Hence, in neither case will infanticide occur, and the potential of an infant herself can be a reason against killing her. Nevertheless, Singer still holds that no infant has the right to life, and he has suggested that perhaps even two or three-year-olds may lack the concept necessary for having this right. On the one hand, it is important to be clear that Singer does not hold the view that it is permissible to kill infants who are wanted, either by their parents or by others. To kill such a child would be to harm either her parents or others. On the other hand, Singer refers with a, without apparent disapproval to societies in which infanticide has been practiced in the past on a rather large scale. And furthermore, if a society confronted a serious overpopulation problem, it seems reasonable to think the singer would have difficulty finding reasons for rejecting a social policy of widespread infanticide. Should singers' views on infanticide be rejected on the ground that they are so contrary to common moral judgments? In the first place, it is not entirely clear that they are contrary to common moral judgments. In some neonatal intensive care units, parents of very low birth weight newborns have the right to decide whether their children should be kept alive. Singer has argued persuasively, in my view, that there is no principled way to ban overt infanticide if this right is accepted. In the second place, this question does not have to be answered, for there are other more compelling considerations that bear on Singer's account of the moral permissibility of ending early human life. Some counterexamples to the Thule Singer view of the wrongness of killing cannot be got around as easily as the apparent counterexamples already mentioned. Consider some examples that Thule himself has mentioned. Consider the case of a woman suffering from depression who says that she wishes she were dead. Consider the case of an individual who, now I'm quoting Thule, may permit someone to kill him because he had been convinced that if he allows himself to be sacrificed to the gods, he will be gloriously rewarded in a life to come. 
Apparently, the Thule singer recounted the wrongness of killing entails that it is morally permissible to kill any of these individuals because they don't desire to live. Since it is not morally permissible to kill any of these individuals, the Thule singer account is wrong. Moral intuition there. <laughs> these problems, <laughs> inside comment to Walter, these comments are very serious. The Thule singer account of the wrongness of killing does not account for the wrongness of killing most of the people in this world who are suicidal. There are going to be special cases in the case of euthanasia and so on and so forth. No. Indeed, it does not account for the wrongness of killing the far greater number of people who suffer from depression and who do not desire to go on living, but who, because of their depression, cannot work up the incentive to kill themselves. The problems with the Thule Singer account don't end there. Thule's account of the wrongness of killing is based on a more general account of rights in which rights are based on desires. Consider a two-year-old. Presumably, she has the right to be vaccinated, even though she does not desire to be vaccinated. Consider a six-year-old. Presumably, she has the right to an education, even if she does not desire to go to school. Thus, not only are there counterexamples to an account of the right to life in terms of the desire to continue to exist, but there are problems with a general strategy of accounting for rights in terms of desires. Unless these problems can be fixed, the Thule Singer defense of abortion and infanticide is unsound. Can the Thule Singer view be revised to avoid these difficulties? Let us consider some possible revisions. Thule repeatedly emphasized how the right to life should be understood in terms of having a concept of oneself as a continuing subject of experiences. People who are suicidal and people who wish to be killed for religious reasons have such a concept. It is equally clear that fetuses and infants lack such a concept. Perhaps the relationship between rights and desires in the Singer-Thule account should be jettisoned in favor of an account of the wrongness of killing based only on the possession of the concept of oneself as a continuing subject of experience. This revision is unsatisfactory. To drop either the general account of the relation between desires and rights or the particular account of the relation between the desire for continued existence and the right to life in the Thule-Singer account is to drop the justification for the moral relevance of having the concept of self as a continuing subject of experience as a crucial concept, as opposed to some other concept cho chosen at random. The reason the Thule Singer account seems to be an improvement over the sanctity of human life account is that it appeals to a property that involves valuing, whereas the property of being a human does not. Accordingly, the price of this modification is too high. Another possible revision of the Thule Singer account involves dropping the appeal to the desire to live and substituting an appeal to preferring to live or taking an interest in living or caring about living or devaluing one's future life. All of these accounts have been, uh, can be found in the literature on, on uh, abortion. All of these gerunds refer to mental states. Thus, the account of the right to life in terms of some mental activity that involves valuing is protected. And since fetuses lack the requisite mental states, they will not have the right to life. However, all of these gerunds refer to what philosophers have sometimes called pro-attitudes. The reason the severely depressed are counterexamples to the Thule-Singer theory is because they lack a pro-attitude 
toward their future existence, no matter whether that pro-attitude is described in terms of desiring to continue to exist or preferring to continue to exist or taking an interest in continuing to exist or valuing their future existence or caring about their future existence. Accordingly, this strategy for repairing the Thule Singer account does not successfully deal with the apparent counterexamples to it. A third strategy for repairing the Thule Singer account is suggested by Singer's analysis of the moral permissibility of euthanasia. Singer holds that there are circumstances in which physicians may practice euthanasia, but only when based on, I'm quoting him, the free and rational decisions of their patients. We may infer that Singer would not permit killing the suicidal and depressed unless their decisions are free and rational. Because the apparent counterexamples to the Thule-Singer view are precisely cases of individuals whose desires are not free and rational, Singer appears to have a clear way to deal with these counterexamples. On the one hand, there is nothing in Singer's account of the ethics of abortion and infanticide to suggest that his account should be understood in terms of free and rational preferences rather than actual preferences, which are sometimes clearly different. On the other hand, because the free and rational preference move seems to solve some problems for Singer, and because it is found elsewhere in his writings, the move is certainly worth examination. It is not immediately clear how the free and rational preference move is supposed to work in the abortion and infanticide context. Although Singer holds that the euthanasia of typical adults is permissible only when the adult's desire for euthanasia is free and rational, he cannot similarly hold that a fetus may be killed only when her desire to die is free and rational. Because fetuses have no desires, this move does not underwrite abortion choice. Perhaps this dismissal is too abrupt. Let us suppose that Singer's account of the wrongness of killing is worked out, not in terms of the desires that individuals actually do have, but in terms of the desires that individuals would have under certain idealized conditions. Let us suppose that Singer's account is understood in terms of the desires that an individual would have if she were fully rational and if she had full information concerning alternatives, courses of actions available to her, and if her desires were not skewed by propagandistic social influences. I'm referring to stuff in the philosophical literature on um, how we should understand um, what, what kinds of desires we, we have a desire we, we should res respect. Presumably the best alternative to the Singer, Thule Singer account will incorporate all of these changes. Let us call this strategy for revising the Thule Singer account following Boonin an ideal desire strategy. Can this strategy succeed? Well, it cannot be faulted for purging the value incorporating rationale from the Thule Singer account of the wrongness of killing, for it does not. Many philosophers have tried to offer an account of welfare in terms of such idealized desires, an account of the wrongness of killing in terms of a reduction of the welfare of the victim is plausible. Furthermore, the strategy cannot be faulted for failing to deal adequately with the apparent counterexamples to the original Thule Singer theory. For plainly, it does not. For sorry, for plainly, it does. The problem with this ideal desire strategy, at least from the point of view of Singer and Thule, is different. On the one hand, an account of the wrongness of killing an individual in terms of the actual desires of the individual 
will certainly permit abortion and infanticide. For it is clear that neither fetuses nor infants possess the conceptual apparatus to continue to exist, to desire to continue to exist. The trouble is that an account of the wrongness of killing an individual in terms of her actual desires is clearly unsatisfactory. On the other hand, an account of the wrongness of killing an individual in terms of her ideal desires does seem to be a far better account of the wrongness of killing. But why should we suppose that fetuses lack the relevant ideal desires? The inference from A lacks the actual desire to X to A lacks the ideal desire to X is unsound. An individual's ideal desires are just the desires one would have if one were rational and fully informed. If a fetus were rational and fully informed, contrary to fact, she would desire to live. It follows that fetuses have an ideal desire to live. It also follows that this strategy does not underwrite abortion choice. Could this conclusion be avoided? What is needed is some account of ideal desires which would not permit attributing ideal desires, or at least the ideal desire to continue to exist in the future, to fetuses. In fact, Boonin's ideal desire account is such an account. According to Boonin, ideal desires are actual desires that have been revised to account for mistakes. Since fetuses cannot have actual desires, they cannot have ideal desires either, on Boonin's view. However, nothing forces us to understand ideal desires in Boonin's way. We could instead under them, understand them as desires that an individual would have, although may not, under certain ideal conditions. We could understand the ideal desire of an individual who suffers from severe depression as the desire that individual would have, but plainly does not, if she did not suffer from the handicap of mental illness. We could understand the ideal desire of an individual fetus as the desire that individual would have, but plainly does not, if she did not suffer from the handicap of underdevelopment. Thus it is clear that Boonin's moral status of the fetus defense of abortion choice rests in the final analysis on Boonin's decision to define an ideal desire so that abortion is permitted, but this won't do, uh, if moral permissibility can rest in the final analysis on such a linguistic stipulation, then anything is permitted. I see no way of revising Singer's argument strategy to avoid these difficulties. An account of the wrongness of killing in terms of actual desires underwrites abortion choice. However, the account is unsound. An account of the wrongness of killing in terms of ideal desires may well be sound, but it does not underwrite abortion choice unless it is restricted in an arbitrary way. It seems fair to conclude that Singer's account of the wrongness of killing with its corollaries concerning abortion and infanticide is unsatisfactory. Singer has shown that the sanctity of human life theory is unsatisfactory. And many of those who are convinced that the Thule-Singer theory fails will infer that the sanctity of human life theory must somehow be resuscitated to avoid moral disaster. Many of those who are convinced 
that the sanctity of human life theory is hopelessly unsound, as both Peter and I do, uh, will search for some variant of the Thule-Singer theory that will work. Surely these are philosophical moves that are born of desperation. They will seem plausible only if one assumes that no other account of the wrongness of killing is a realistic possibility. Happily, <laughs> there is an alternative. <laughs> uh, guess what, folks? You're going to hear my view. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the future of value account of the wrongness of killing. Now you get a few. Okay. Consider those adults and children whom we all believe it would be seriously wrong to kill. Why do we believe that killing them is wrong? Here is a simple answer. Killing them would harm them greatly. What is the nature of that harm? Killing them would deprive them of the goods of life that they would have experienced had they not been killed. If I am killed now, my entire life contains fewer goods than if I am not killed now and I don't die of something else in the meantime. Therefore, killing me harms me. Killing deprives an individual of her future of value. This account fits well with other things that we believe. Suppose I discover that I have incurable cancer. I would regard this as a very great misfortune, and so would you. What makes the incurable cancer a very great misfortune for me? It causes me to experience fewer of the goods of life, assuming I die from it, than I otherwise would. The cancer harms me. The future of value account of the wrongness of killing fits in nicely with the way we actually think of the misfortune of premature death and the harm caused by it. The future of value account has implications very different from the Thule-Singer theory. We were all fetuses once. Well, this is controversial, it will turn out, but, but uh, I'm going to assume that we were all fetuses once. Um, uh, most people have been assuming this for quite some time until recently. The valuable futures of these fetuses are nothing more than those aspects of our past and future lives that are now, will be or would be, and were valued by us. If it is wrong to kill us because we have futures of value, and killing us would be deprive us of our futures of value, then it would have been wrong to have aborted us for the fetuses we once were had futures very much like ours. These futures consist of our own future and past lives, and therefore abortion is wrong. And infanticide is wrong for the same reasons. This account of the wrongness of killing is based on an plausible account of wrongness. Unlike sanctity of human life theories, it is not based on a merely biological characteristic. The value of the future of a standard human being consists in those aspects of her future life she will value when she lives them, or she would value when she would live them. These aspects are such things as enjoying hiking or fishing or enjoying one's children or grandchildren or friends or figuring out a problem or luxuriating in the loveliness, this is the best, of a live performance of the Mendelssohn E-flat major string quartet. If you haven't done that, great. Almost, 
true. Okay. The value of a future is constituted by those aspects of our future lives that make these future lives worth living. Therefore, unlike a sanctity of human life account, it does not imply an obligation to prolong the lives of anencephalic newborns or persons in persistent vegetative state. The valuable aspects of the lives of, valuable an of anencephalic newborns or persons in persistent vegetative state are forever close to them. Our being biologically alive makes it possible for us to enjoy the good things of our lives, but our being biologically alive is not on the future of value view, intrinsically valuable. I part company with the Pope here, of course. Biological life is like a Rawlsian primary good. It almost always makes possible life's goods, but it is not itself intrinsically good. Thus, the future of value view does not entail that it would be wrong to kill someone whose suffering cannot be relieved and who wants to die. The future of value view is superior to the Thule Singer view because it accounts for the wrongness of killing those who do not desire to live. The suicidal have futures of value. At least they will have valuable lives if they receive psychotherapy or psychotropic drugs or both. Although most people desire their continued existence, the reason most people desire their continued existence is because they anticipate that their future lives will be valuable to them. The reason the suicidal have an ideal desire to continue to exist is that they have futures of value. Our futures of value underlie our desires, or in the case of the depressed and fetuses, underlie their ideal desires. The future of value account explains why Singer's desire account of the wrongness of killing appears to account for cases in which killing is wrong to the extent that it does. The future of value view does not suffer from speciesism. It is entirely possible that beings from other planets have futures very much like ours. If so, it will be wrong to kill them if we encounter them. Do other mammals have futures sufficiently like ours such that it is wrong to kill them? Nothing in the future of value theory itself gives us a definitive answer to this question. You might want to ask about this later. It's a little complicated how this goes. Singer has argued that we can have reasons for thinking that the life of a human is more valuable than that of a mouse. This could be the basis for saying that the killing of human beings is, ceteris paribus, especially wrong. Uh, now I want to talk briefly about the issue of potentiality because the, the future of value view is a potentiality view through and through. And Peter Singer has criticized potentiality views of the right to life, so I want to say something about that. But then I'll be finished. Should have been finished long ago. There we are. Uh, the sanctity of human life theory and a desire theory of the wrongness of killing base the wrongness of killing some individual at some particular time on some actual property of that individual at that time. The future of value theory, by contrast, bases the wrongness of killing on some property an individual will have or would have, not ultimately on a property she actually has now. Of course, you now have a future of value 
in virtue of being an individual having a certain potentiality. And that potentiality is grounded on your present actual nature as a human being. Nevertheless, it is not that present potentiality itself that is intrinsically valuable to you. Your actual or potential future is the source of the value of your future life to you and therefore the basis for the wrongness of killing you on the future of value of you. Accordingly, the future of value theory is a potentiality theory through and through. The wrongness of killing fetuses re resides in their potentiality because the wrongness of killing you resides in your potentiality. I mean, notice how the argument's going. If you were in persistent vegetative state, then you wouldn't have that potentiality to have a future of value, and therefore, on my view, it wouldn't be wrong to kill you, but this is something that, that Peter would agree with, although perhaps for different reasons. But I mean, it, the theory works out. Um, the theory is a potenti potentiality theory, and that provides it with certain advantages. Singer has offered many objections to potentiality accounts of the wrongness of killing fetuses and infants. Do any of these objections undermine the future of value theory? Singer has claimed that it is possible to harm an individual in a morally significant way. Sorry. Singer has claimed that it is impossible to harm an individual in a morally significant way unless she is now actually sentient, since some fetuses are not sentient. But only potentially sentient, Singer's claim implies, in opposition to the future of value theory, that it would not be wrong to end the life of a fetus that lacks sentience. Singer's argument for his view is that no individual that lacks sentience has interests, and no individual that lacks interests can be harmed. Now consider some adult human who, because of an accident, is temporarily unconscious, but after a period in intensive care will recover and with a month, within a month be functioning well. We believe that disconnecting such a person from his life supports would harm him. Because such a person is not actually sentient, there is a problem with Singer's argument. What went wrong? Well, what, here's what went wrong. Having an interest is hopelessly ambiguous. The human being who is unconscious in the ICU cannot take an interest in anything, including her future. If we want to count someone as having an interest in something only if she takes an interest in that thing, then our temporarily unconscious human being lacks any interest. However, it is clearly possible to harm this temporarily unconscious individual. Hence, however, we do not have to understand interest in this way. We want to say that is in the best interests of this temporarily unconscious person to remain on life supports. This notion of interest identifies interests with the welfare of this human being as a whole. And if we understand interest in this way, then a non-sentient um, individual can have interests. And either way, Singer's argument will be unsound. Singer has considered the claim that it is wrong to kill a normal human infant or fetus because, I now quote, it has good prospects of a happy, worthwhile and fulfilling life, a life with many of the experiences which we think of as making our own lives rewarding and satisfying. Singer believes arguments exist for the rejection of this claim. If Singer is right, then Singer has an argument for rejecting the future of value account. So is he right? Singer believes that the moral irrelevance 
of the act-omission distinction is a basis for rejecting this claim. However, merely rejecting the moral significance of the act-omission distinction will not undermine the future of value view or, for that matter, the sanctity of human life view. People who believe that infants have the right to life usually think that deliberately omitting to feed an infant is as wrong as poisoning her. Hence, the moral irrelevance of the act-omission distinction does not undermine a potentiality view in the absence of additional analysis. Singer believes that the moral irrelevance of the act-omission distinction, when combined with a view in which potentiality is valuable, implies an absurdity. He says, I'm now quoting, if one holds that it is wrong to kill a newborn infant or fetus because that infant or fetus will eventually become a person with a worthwhile life, then why is it not also wrong to omit to do an act which would have the consequence that a person with a worthwhile life comes into existence? Thus, Singer seems to think that a potentiality theorist is committed to holding that abstaining from sex when reproduction would have taken place is wrong. However, even Singer notes that this argument is not quite convincing. I now quote him again. When we refrain from reproducing, there is no being whose life has already begun. Intuitively, this makes a difference. And I think the, intu the difference is more than merely intuitive. In the first case, an individual has been harmed. In the second case, no individual has been harmed. You don't harm an individual by, by practicing contraception or not having sex when you would conceive. There's no individual there to be harmed. Accordingly, even if one agrees with Singer that the act-omission distinction is morally irrelevant, the future of value theory does not seem to imply that it is wrong to refrain from reproducing. Thank heavens. Perhaps Singer would think that this point about harm is not important, for he does not think that he could have been harmed in infancy. He says, I quote again, when I think of myself as the person I now am, I realize that I did not come into existence until, until sometime after my birth. This is an odd claim. It implies that Peter Singer was never a fetus, nor was he born. Because the biological organism that the name Peter Singer is ordinarily thought to denote certainly was born, right there in the front row, um, it follows that Peter Singer is not a biological organism. <laughs> this remarkable view all surely requires defense, which I think Peter's going to offer in his comments, <laughs> but Singer offers none. Finally, which he didn't. He will, but he didn't. Finally, Singer has objected to potentiality accounts of the right to life on the grounds that a potential X does not have all the rights of an X. And what Singer means is that the fact that an actual X has the right R does not entail that a potential X has R, and Singer is certainly correct about this. But this is no objection to the future of value account. On the future of value account, an actual person has the right to life in virtue of her potentiality. Since having this potentiality is a sufficient condition for having the right to life, potential persons who have this potentiality also have the right to life. There is no illicit inference here. Singer's objections to potentiality arguments are not sufficient to show that the future of value account is incorrect. The purpose of this essay, and I'm going to conclude, believe it or not, 
has been to evaluate Peter Singer's views on the ethics of abortion and infanticide. Singer has offered compelling arguments for rejecting the doctrine of the sanctity of human life. He has endorsed in the final analysis Tooley's 1972 account of the wrongness of killing, and this account permits abortion and infanticide. However, the Tooley-Singer view is subject to counterexamples that show that it is unsound. Furthermore, if my analysis is correct, no revision of the Tooley-Singer view is both an adequate account of the wrongness of killing and also permits abortion and infanticide. I believe that the future of value view is a superior alternative to the Tooley-Singer view or any revision of it. It explains why the Tooley-Singer view is correct when it is. It is untouched by Singer's arguments against potentiality, theories of a fetal right to life. The future value account does not permit abortion and infanticide. And therefore, we must conclude that Singer's defense of abortion and infanticide is inadequate. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Marcus, for that uh, very clear account of uh, the deficiencies in the view that I've defended. I'll try to defend some of those points anyway. Um, so uh, there are a lot of number of, of different issues here. Firstly, though, let me just say that there clearly are things on which we agree, and I think that they're important. We agree on the deficiencies of the traditional sanctity of life view. We agree that uh, a correct view cannot be speciesist. It cannot refer simply to the fact that beings are members of the species Homo sapien. We agree also, it seems, that um, if indeed we're to allow parents of very low birth weight newborns the right to decide whether their children should be kept alive or not, that is in principle no different from allowing infanticide. So, um, if we accept uh, uh, Marcus's view, that's one change, it would seem, that we are going to have to make with current practices, things that we generally do allow when infants, uh, for example, have severe brain damage, uh, we allow parents to withdraw treatment. But, of course, uh, perhaps Professor Marcus could argue that those with severe brain damage don't have the future like ours, so those cases are not uh, so troubling. But um, issues of principle need to be discussed. Now, let me just also say one thing, uh, one or two things about what I have argued. I think, in general, uh, uh, Professor Marcus has given a, a very fair account of uh, my views. Uh, there was one remark that may have struck you uh, in talking about the claim that um, infants don't have a right to life. And, and uh, as he said, for me, rights is not necessarily the best terminology, but uh, claiming that it's not as seriously wrong to kill newborn infants as it is to kill uh, later humans. Um, he, he referred to uh, a statement of mine that um, pr probably uh, even two or three-year-olds don't have the necessary concepts uh, that I refer to as, as basing the uh, wrongness of killing. That is the concept of uh, awareness of your own existence over time and having preferences for the future. Um, it's true that I, I think it is possible, at least, that they don't have that concept, but I've never suggested that the uh, period, if you like, uh, in which it might be permissible to end the lives of, of infants should extend anything like 
that far. I think you should make decisions very early on in life. In one of my early co-authored works, I suggested a 28-day cut-off period because um, I, I no longer think that you can really have a, a deadline like that. But I do think that it's important to make decisions early because uh, there's simply the fact of, of human attachment um, beyond that point, um, and I think it's, it's a lot easier to make decisions uh, in infancy, and you certainly uh, don't want to allow them to, to stretch out whatever the abstract questions of the concepts that, that infants may have. Um, you want uh, to, to have children loved and cared for from uh, the earliest time if they're going to survive at all, and uh, that means that I think it's, it's not possible to contemplate uh, killing them uh, at such a late time. Okay, um, let's move then to the question of the counterexamples that Marquis offers to the general view that I suggest. He offers two counterexamples um, of, uh, of uh, people who want to die, who he thinks, on my view, uh, I'm required to say that it's permissible to kill them, uh, and he thinks that it's not. They're the uh, depressed person and the would-be religious martyr, the person who thinks they'll be gloriously rewarded in an afterlife if killed. Uh, some comments on those counterexamples. Re regarding the depressed person, it wasn't clear as first presented anyway um, exactly what kind of a case this was. Um, if it's a person suffering from long-term depression who has already undergone a variety of possible treatments, which have all failed, and she nevertheless... Uh, uh, or she still wishes to die in the belief that the depression is indeed uh, causing her uh, a life of suffering and misery and that there is no real prospect of recovery from that, then I would not agree with Marcus's statement that it's not morally permissible to kill this person on her request. But I think perhaps Marquis himself doesn't really think that it is uh, impermissible because later on he said that if someone is, can only look forward to suffering, and wants to die, it is permissible to kill them. So I take it that, that that's not the case that he has in mind here when he thinks that uh, it's not morally permissible to kill the person. He's perhaps thinking of, rather of someone who, because they're depressed, um, has an excessively pessimistic view of the prospects of recovering from the depression and maybe doesn't seek out treatment. And if that's so, then um, it's a case that in uh, an important respect is like the case of the uh, would-be religious martyr who believes he's going to be gloriously rewarded in an afterlife if killed. That is, um, both of these people are basing their desires to die on false beliefs, on, on inaccurate uh, uh, opinions about what their future holds. And uh, in that case, then, uh, as Mark was said, I would suggest that that's not the kind of desire that we ought to act on, that we should rather look at the desires they would have if they were well informed and understood their future prospects. Um, so the situation here is, is rather like that of the thirsty person who reaches for a bottle of water here, thinking that it's, it's just plain water and will quench his thirst. Um, and so, you know, let's say, you know, can you pass me the water, let's say. Now, we know, in fact, that um, this is not water but a deadly poison. Um, should we uh, do what he requests us to do? Obviously not. We should um, inform him that this is poison and then he'll change his desire to... Uh, empty the contents of the bottle down his throat. 
So, um, similarly, if a person's preference is to die because they think falsely that uh, they have nothing but suffering in store for them, or because they think falsely that if they die, they'll have an eternity of bliss, um, we should not act on that actual desire. We should act on, uh, in fact, the, the idealised desire, if you want to call it that, as uh, Mark was said uh, and refers to David Boonin's account of that. However, Marquis then claims that if I say this, I'm stuck on a problem with regard to uh, abortion or infanticide. Because, he says, how can I appeal to the idealised desire in the case of uh, the depressive or the, or the uh, would-be martyr uh, and not in the case of the fetus or infant? Uh, he contends that there's no real difference between the two, that it would be arbitrary to appeal to an idealised desire in one case and not in the other. But I don't agree that it is. Uh, I think that, in fact, um, we should uh, rather think of this situation, as Boonin indeed suggests, as um, ideal desires, as actual desires corrected for factual errors. So, in other words, before we can correct the desires, there has to be a desire. And if we have a fetus who has no desires at all, um, we assume we're talking about a fetus that, that, that doesn't have any desires, then we can't just invent a desire. We can't just impute a desire, or at least it would be a, a very different thing, to impute a desire to this entity that has no desires at all and say that's the idealised desire. We need to have some desires to work with. So... Um, uh, if we look at what um, uh, Marquis said, um, he said, well, we've got in one case the ideal desire that the individual would have but plainly does not if she did not suffer from the handicap of mental illness. We could understand the ideal desire of an individual fetus as the desire the individual would have but plainly does not if she did not suffer from the handicap of underdevelopment. But being a fetus is not a handicap that an individual suffers from in the way that severe depression may be a handicap uh, uh, to clear thinking about one's future. Indeed, I'd suggest that the change from um, the fetus to an individual capable of having desires about his or her continued life is really a change from one kind of being, a physical organism, to a quite different kind of being, um, to a being with a mental life, um, if you like, to uh, take a term that uh, Jeff McMahon, who's here, has used, um, and to being an embodied mind. Um, and that's an important change, and that relates to what Mark was said about um, what kind of an organism I am, um, that I don't think I'm a biological organism. So I'm going to say a little bit more about this in just a moment. Um, but uh, before I do, um, I want to return to this uh, problem of uh, potentiality that Mark was, uh, also talked about, um, which I raised many years ago in regard to the... Um, this anti-abortion position. Um, my view was, uh, and is indeed, as, as Mike was correctly said, that uh, the future of value view implies not just that abortion is normally wrong, but that abstaining from procreation is normally wrong, because both the abortion and the abstention from procreation will result in the existence of one less valuable life being lived. So Marquis's response is that in the first case, an individual has been harmed, and in the second case, no individual has been harmed. But there is a question here as to when this individual starts to exist. And here um, 
I actually have prepared a little bit based, unfortunately, on some parts of Marcus's argument that he didn't present to you for reasons of time, but that I want to say a little bit about, and we can then have some more discussion about it. Um, the question of when the individual exists raises an issue um, in, in various ways, but one of them that it raises is to do with the nature of early embryos. And so I'm going to, if I can get this up now, I'm not quite sure what I'm supposed to be doing here. Um, just a minute. I'm trying to get uh, a couple of pictures on, on this screen, and I'm not quite sure what I'm doing. Wait a second. Let's see. I think I have some help coming down, do I? Uh, let me start that. Okay, I've got something on the screen here that I want to put on that screen, but uh, I haven't got it here. You can... So, why is that not there? Justine, if you have muted the projector. Okay, good. Thank you. Okay, so we can move to the next screen. Right, okay. So here we have an early embryo. In fact, this embryo consists of just two cells. So um, one question is, is this an individual who would be harmed by... Um, uh, sorry, uh, is, this, is this an individual who would be harmed it, it's in existence by its existence not being allowed to continue? Now... Um, Marquis could either say yes or no to that question, and there's problems either way, as I see it. Um, if he says this is an individual, uh, a problem occurs in the fact that this embryo may split. It may, in fact, split naturally, or we may artificially split it. Let's just focus on the natural case. This is how we get identical twins. We have an embryo like this, um, and it splits off into these two cells, and each of them then develops into um, an individual. So if the claim is that I existed, let's say we take the view that I'm the biological organism and that I existed at this stage, um, there's a puzzle in that um, when it splits, um, uh, what happens to the, to the individual? Does a new individual emerge? Does the one individual split? Um, what are we to say about this situation? And if indeed uh, it is supposed to be an individual, then is the individual identical with both of them? There are, uh, there's, a, there's a clear philosophical problem here that you can't, have, uh, uh, you can't be identical with two different things. So you can't say that this is identical with the two successor cells that come off it. Now, I haven't, in fact, to know uh, what uh, Marquis's answer to this is because it was in the longer version of the paper. Um, he says, in fact... Uh, he acknowledges that this, this situation, uh, acknowledges that these cells are totipotent, in fact says that this can happen even up to further stages. Okay, here we have one which is actually at the eight cell stage, though you can't see all eight cells. And uh, he says it's true of 16 cells. Uh, I'm not sure uh, how long totipotency lasts. Uh, I've heard it said that it only it tends to decline after eight cells, but it doesn't really matter philosophically. Uh, he says this. The fact that the cells produced up to the 16-cell stage are totipotent, totipotent here means that each one of them has the potential to give rise to a whole individual, and therefore can split into one or more individuals, suggests a difficulty with a view that a human individual, a later stage of which is an adult, begin, begins to exist at conception. 
Indeed, perhaps at the 16-cell stage, there are 16 human individuals. And he then goes on to say, so perhaps this is a reason for saying that uh, it's not wrong to destroy the early embryo, so that for the, relevant to the debate about stem cell research. Um, and it's only after the possibility of twinning is passed, or indeed perhaps after the separation of the cells that form the placenta is passed, that you actually have an individual. But um, I think that that raises a, uh, a, a difficult issue. So um, take my own, uh, and now what I'm going to do is to try out an argument that counters the argument that I myself made many years ago concerning the possibility of twinning. So let's take my own case. Okay? I do not happen to have a twin, identical twin brother. Now it's actually possible, although I might not have known it, that um, there was an identical twin in my mother's uterus uh, at some stage during, my, uh, uh, during the pregnancy when she was pregnant with me, but that she lost it. That happens occasionally. People don't, don't know about it. But let's assume it didn't happen. Let's assume that we can't know it, but it's quite probable that it didn't happen. So I never had an identical twin brother. Um, it's then at least arguable that the human organism before you, standing before you, began at conception. And we all know the arguments for this view. Um, those uh, opposed to abortion uh, often take this argument. They say, once the egg and sperm have joined together, the genetic basis of the organism is set, so many of my characteristics, uh, my uh, eye colour and uh, perhaps some question aspects about my personality or whatever, I don't know, were determined. So if we believe that we should protect the life of any individual with a future of value, it seems reasonable to hold that we should protect the life of the zygote from which I developed. So far, so good for the future of value view. But now what about those 16, or here 8, totipotent cells that we have? We now have, in fact, as I said earlier, we actually have the technology to separate these cells and uh, we can take each of them, put each of them in a little dish and allow them to develop a bit further so that the single cells we've separated develop on to this sort of stage and then assume that we have uh, the uh, right number of women who are willing to volunteer to gestate uh, those embryos. In other words, they're willing to uh, become pregnant with those embryos. Is this something that we should do? Is this something that we should actually divide up this embryo when we get it in the lab, in some case of in vitro fertilization, and try and encourage women to volunteer to gestate the, uh, the embryos and bring them uh, to existence? On the future of value view, it would seem that we should. The resulting 16 individuals will then be able to look back on each of those separated cells and will say, that is when I began to exist as an individual human organism. Failing to separate the cells is thus denying them a future of value in precisely the same way that aborting a fetus denies that human organism a future of value. So even if the uh, Marquis has, has a counter-argument to my point about the requirement that we have sex when fertile to reproduce, I think he's still stuck with uh, this, with a view that suggests that we should, we have an obligation to create more um, individuals in this way. But if this actually uh, seems a strange consequence, it's only going to get worse. Although the headlines that we had a year or so ago announcing the cloning of the first uh, human being, 
by the South Korean scientist uh, Wu Suk Wang turned out to be premature. His research appears to have been fraudulent. Um, it's probable that this will be achieved sometime in the coming years. If it is, then it's not just these cells, but um, it's every cell. It's the cells we could take from this fetus that also have the potential to become human beings. And of each of them, you could say the same thing. Um, they, could, they could be the start of an individual life uh, with a future of value. So uh, essentially, it becomes infinite. We can create an infinite number of beings, and it would seem that, at least other things being equal, on the future of value view, we have uh, an obligation to do so. Or if not, at least Marquis needs to tell us why not, and I hope that he will shortly. Okay. Um, so that's a kind of uh, reductio against, uh, against the view that um, uh, we have an obligation to uh, allow individuals, entities with futures of value to uh, live those futures of value. But of course, it's all premised on the idea that we're biological organisms. Marquis could avoid those problems and still preserve a future of value view if he were to abandon the idea that we're biological organisms. Um, but it seems like he doesn't want to do that. He um, was rather skeptical about my view that uh, when I think of myself as the person I now am, I believe that I didn't come into existence as a fetus or even perhaps at birth, but sometime afterwards. He thinks that that's an odd claim, and the claim that I'm not a biological organism is a remarkable view. Well, I agree that it, perhaps I should have given it some defense in uh, the works that he referred to, um, and I will now um, remedy that uh, deficiency, um, and I'm fortunate in doing so in the, in the interim years. Um, uh, Jeff McGrath has published uh, his excellent book, The Ethics of Killing, in which, uh, in the first chapter on identity, he gives a number of arguments which I will um, essentially simply repeat. One of them is based on uh, the brain transplant case, a case that philosophers have, have often discussed. Um, there's two people brought into an emergency room. Let's say I'm one of them. Uh, my body has been mangled beyond repair, but miraculously my brain is still intact and okay. Uh, the other uh, victim of the accident, um, his brain has been destroyed, but the body is still intact. So rapidly the surgeons perform a transplant of my brain into the stranger's body. The operation is a great success. Um, I get up and start walking around. I'm much more handsome than I was before, um, but I have exactly my memories, my personality. Um, I uh, identify and continue to love uh, my wife and my children and the people close to me, um, and the uh, children and, and spouse of the uh, stranger are, uh, are complete strangers to me and so on. Who has survived the accident? I think we all think that I've survived the accident, not the stranger whose body is walking around. Um, so that suggests that um, uh, it's not which biological organism most largely survived. Now, and of course, one could perhaps say, well, um, we're not just talking about volume of body mass here. We're talking about what's really important to the organism and the brain is the regulative, organism, uh, the regulative uh, organ of the organism that uh, makes us breathe and walk around and all those things. So that's why that's, uh, I'm the one who survived. Um, as uh, Jeff McMahon says, but even if it was only my cerebrum that was transplanted, not the regulative organ, but just the repository of consciousness, we would still think that I was the one who survived. And so I think that makes uh, it 
much uh, less plausible to suggest that somehow uh, it's the bit of matter that goes across that's important. Rather, it's the memories and personality that matter, not what regulates my breathing and heartbeat. Now, there's a second argument I'm just going to mention and then I'm going to uh, stop uh, that I think is a difficulty for the view that we are biological organisms. And it's the case of conjoined twins. And Sorry, I'll skip that. So here is an example of an actual pair of twins, Abigail and Brittany Hensel, uh, conjoined twins who, uh, as uh, uh, Jeff says, and I would agree, um, I believe this is simply one biological organism. Um, yet, clearly, there are two people here. Abigail and Brittany are two different people. Uh, they can want different things. Um, they can have different personalities uh, and so on. But they are living in one biological organism. So um, it's difficult to, I mean, there's various ways that you could try and, and say that uh, this is perhaps that this is a, a not one biological organism. But clearly, if, if something happens to it, um, they are going to both die. They'll both suffer if from, from cancer or whatever it might be. Um, and uh, it seems to me that the most natural way to think of this is of two persons in one organism. So um, that's uh, why I think um, it is indeed plausible to think that uh, we are not just biological organisms, but that we are embodied minds, and that's what's um, uh, important about us, about our personal identity. Nevertheless, um, uh, I do think that, in fact, this is not really crucial to the question of, of the wrongness of killing. It's not really crucial, crucial what personal identity is, um, and that's, in the end, the problem that I have with, with Marcus's view, because it, it makes this question of when do I begin to exist as so crucial. And yet this is a gradual process in many ways, and I think we should focus rather on the consequences, on what we're doing in ending life, uh, uh, and the consequences are relevant in terms of uh, what sort of uh, uh, beings will exist, what sort of preferences are we satisfying, and uh, in that sense, uh, it's not a question of uh, when does a being actually come into existence, but rather what is going to be the outcome of our acts that is important in deciding uh, whether ending life is defensible or not. Okay, I'll stop at that uh, point. Um, we began a little late because of the transfer, so I think uh, to give us a reasonable amount of time for uh, questions and discussion, uh, we should uh, go a little bit beyond six o'clock. Let's say I'll, I'll propose to, we'll see how question and discussion goes, but I'll, I'll plan to go till about 6.15 and close it off there. So Don, if you would get it, come back and, and join me on the platform and we'll take uh, questions or comments to either of us. Thanks very much. Okay, Jeff, I think you're first up. Yeah, can you speak up, Jeff? It's a big room.
think that's a question for you, Rowling Major. Yeah. Can you? Sorry, you're getting, I'm getting signs. Can you, can you come over and, and use? Yeah, because we're doing a, okay. a recording, so okay. it'll pick you up better. Um, that's a problem with my view, and, and of course, since I've read your book, I've, I've taken various uh, had, had various thoughts about how I should respond to it. Um, and on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, um, I'm willing to, to buy into the uh, apparently counterintuitive consequence. Um, we need to realize, of course, that uh, we're, we're social beings, and there are lots of reasons why it would be wrong to kill um, any of us. Uh, the, so so the, the, there's a certain amount of abstraction in, in the analysis. Um, I'm not certainly claiming, it would be absurd to claim, that the only thing that's wrong with killing somebody is that you're depriving them of a future of value because uh, killing people uh, harms those who love them, for one thing. Um, and for that reason, um, it may not be quite as wrong to kill a fetus, but nevertheless, we want to, I, I do want to say that it is seriously wrong to, um, to kill somebody uh, because you deprive them of a future value, and, and that is sufficient to make it seriously wrong because I want it to be wrong to kill hermits, okay? And I want it to be wrong to kill people who, who, um, whose friends might find it easy to make new friends, for example. Um, so you, you, it, it does seem to me that you, you want an account of the wrongs of killing that um, makes it, uh, makes the deprivation of a future value a sufficient condition of the, of the wrongness. Uh, but still, am I stuck with the inequality view? Well, maybe not. I mean, we might decide that it is that the respect that we owe others is based on the very great harm that killing them um, would involve, since it would seem to be a greater harm than any other kind of thing you could do, since it deprives them of all of the goods of their lives. And we simply um, hold the view that that even though the harm's different, uh, the, 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 um, we have this obligation of respect, and the respect for young and old should, should be equal. But sometimes I'm not sure that move's going to work, um, and um, I don't have a good answer to Jeff's uh, um, Jeff's question. I mean, sometimes I, I simply do think, yeah, if we think about it a while, um, we have to hold this inequality view. And the reason is that I think that there's a distinction between, um, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm sort of hesitating for things because I'm, I'm talking about an entirely different issue from the what I see as the controversy with you. Um, but, but sometimes I think there's a distinction between the, our equal respect for persons, where we consider the respect for persons in terms of the person's whole life, 
and the equal wrongness of killing. It may well be that we can have a perfectly decent theory of equal respect for persons where we mean an equal respect for their flourishing, and yeah, you can cause some people to flourish less than others by, by killing them. Uh, if this would be an account which would make, which would be incompatible with, a, with an account of the equal respect for persons, uh, but would not make killings equally wrong. Now, I'm waving at something, and I know darn well I'm waving at something that, that I should work out carefully, and I have not worked out carefully in print, and you'll just have to take this as, as a wave. <laughs> but uh, that's what it is. There's, there's another problem I have with Jeff's view is that, that um, if you push the equality objection, as I would call it, really hard, then you have to come up with an account of the wrongness of killing that is compatible with this equality principle, which Jeff pushes rather hard. And what Jeff, in fact, does, of course, is, is argue that killing has a two-tiered account of the wrongness of killing in which um, when killing is a really major wrong, it's wrong because it violates the autonomy of a person. Um, I just don't, I find it hard to believe that our what's wrong with killing children is based very much on their autonomy at all. It's based on the fact that we deprive them of the opportunity of becoming flourishing human beings. Um, because I think that, at least, I don't, I'm a simple-minded country boy, but I've raised a couple of kids myself, and um, I sort of thought that what I was doing and the basis of my moral obligations as a parent was not to respect their autonomy. Indeed, if I could get them to do what I thought they ought to do and bribe them, uh, unmercifully, um, and uh, my son can tell you, give you some examples of that, as a matter of fact. Um, uh, <laughs> the, I, I thought that what was important in, in raising my children was to, to um, coerce them or bring them up in such a way or whatever you want to say, such that uh, they would become flourishing adults, which, thank heavens, they have been. But I'm just rattling on. and. The first part, let, repeat the first part of your objection again. Um, or if I rattled on too long, so okay. that we get we, some time. We yeah, okay. we'll have a chance to discuss right. further with Jeff yeah. over dinner, I think, yeah. and, and other sure. people here who won't be at the dinner. Um, there were some other hands I saw. Yes, there. Again, can you speak up, please?
So you're suggesting that in some way the, the existence of potential always gives you some uh, wrong-making factor, but, but it somehow becomes more significant as the development goes on and, and therefore is less easily outweighed by the needs of the mother or something of that sort. Um, I mean, you know, I, I guess such a view might be possible to construct. Um, it's, it's not the view that I'm holding. Um, and, you know, while you're right to say that for me there is no clear cutoff, um, that's because the capacities that I'm looking at, the capacity to see yourself as existing over time and to have a preference for the future, is something that comes in gradually, and I don't quite know when it comes in. But once it does start coming in, then I guess it's true that um, I suppose I would think that it's more seriously wrong to kill a being that has a, you know, sort of lots of plans for the future and a clear, very clear sense of their own future and clear desires, as we all do, and perhaps less wrong to kill a being that has only um, a, a sort of rather dim sense of that, which might be the case of what we're talking about with, a, with an infant, um, or might be the difference between killing a human and killing a chimpanzee or something of that sort. So I do think that, there, if you like, there could be increases gradually in the seriousness of the wrongness of killing, but not because of the mere fact of potential, rather because of the actual existence of the desire to continue living and differences in how, uh, you know, clearly perceived that desire is by the being itself. Uh, there's a question there, yes, the, uh, in, the, in the blue. Yeah. Um, I was just So, um, I'm, is this a question for both of us, really, or specifically for what, because it relates to what I said? Yeah. Okay, just about that metaphor. Well, um, I guess I have, uh, I have some trouble with the case that you're describing of someone who actually wants to go on living, but who we judge their life to be uh, miserable rather than, rather than beneficial for them. Um, because I tend to think that the, the individual living the life is the best judge of how good their life is. So um, at least normally if, if they want to go on living, that's a sign that uh, you know, they think that their life is okay. It may not be terrific, but anyway, not below this sort of, you know, not purely negative, not a life of suffering. And I don't think we should second guess that. Um, I can imagine cases maybe where you had some special reason for doing that. That is, in fact, where they say their life is just miserable and is going to go on miserable. But, you know, like uh, Hamlet or whatever said, you know, oh, if the Almighty had not fixed his rule against uh, taking your own life, then I would do it. But, um, you know, I can't do it because I believe that, that it's against God's law. And let's suppose that we know that, in fact, it's not, there is no God or it's not against God's law if there is a God. Um, I suppose that might be a kind of case that would pull me... 
So they don't even think about it? I mean, can we communicate with them? Can we say, you know, look, isn't your life pretty bad? Do you really want to go on living given how gruesome it is? Can we say that to them and get their views on it? Or Ah. I don't really know. I mean, you know, maybe they can have a couple of good years before they die from, from uh, the disease. Um, you know, I... Uh, I'd, I'd, as I say, I'd be very hesitant to try and second-guess someone who... who wants to go on living uh, in that way. But if, if, if they were not capable of having any desires and we could foresee that their life was going to be miserable and so on, I guess that might be a possible case. Um, yes, well, we've got lots of hands now. I think you're in the black T-shirt. Yeah, you are next. Now, because in a way, I sort of tacitly agree with, with what Peter said. Um, the, the, the judgment that we've, we've got to go with is what would their life be like if they were treated? And if it turns out, if, if we really have somebody who has been repeatedly treated for depression and we don't have psychotropic drugs that are going to handle the, the, the problem. And we don't, uh, psychotherapy isn't going to handle the problem. Um, then uh, they're just, they're just going to have a miserable life for the rest of their life. And we can be sure of that. I don't think, you know, I, I think that's going to be a case in which that, that really is going to be crucial. And uh, I don't think there are many of those cases. Um, but if there were some of those cases, then it seems to me we, we do have an argument for, for uh, and they want to die. Uh, we would have an argument for not protecting their lives. And I think it really, I think that the really crucial issue is what their future is going to be like. And I think that's the way we actually do think about it. And I think that if, if the, the relatives of the person said, oh, but, but we've invested so much in this person, eh, that's not going to do it. I'm, I'm very reluctant to, and you can see what I'm doing, I'm very reluctant to 
let this matter hang in rather important ways on what the attitudes of others are, because those could be different, and then we can do away with the person. Yeah. No, because I'm, I'm, I mean, in the, the first, the, the, I, I do think that that first 14 day problems after fertilization are very hard, and um, as I said in my notorious paper, I, I don't, I'm really not sure what to say about those cases when we don't, um, individuation problems are 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 up in the air, um, and I would simply have to. Um, now, I, I think Peter thinks I've got problems anyway, okay? Um, and it may be that his objections can be turned by the distinction between preventing an individual coming into existence and then harming an individual after they're already in existence. That may be the case, but I'm not sure. And I, and I don't, can't tell enough from, from his presentation and just how the argument's going to go to make a confident response. So, yeah, it's something to worry. I mean, the kind of thing you're worried about is, is the right kind of thing to worry about. Uh, but whether this actually works, we may have to wait to see when the volume of Singer Under Fire uh, <laughs> comes out and, and there will be a response and, and he will have it all sort of worked out carefully and then we'll be able to evaluate what he says. I mean, a great advantage in having people write things and put them in print and then you know what they think and so on, at least you hope. Actually, that reminds me that I should have given you an opportunity to respond to what I said and you have now been given an opportunity to respond yeah. to the bit about the early embryo. What's your response to the um, Dicephalus case, to the, to the twins? Do you, do you think that's, do you, do you agree that that shows that um, we're not simply biological organisms, that there well, are two persons that, in the one organism? Yeah, there? right. Uh, I find the dicephalus case puzzling because I don't think it's clear they're one biological organism. Uh -huh. uh, and maybe this is just the biologist in me. Well, I, I, look, I mean, you don't, you don't sort of look at what you see. He, he had it up there on the board. I mean, I had enough physio... Maybe my problem is that I've taken too many human biology courses in my life, but I have. And um, I, I look at the innards of, of these kids, and then I ask myself, well, is this one biological organism or two? And I don't know, I can go either way. I, I, think, it's, I think it's a very hard case. I don't think it's, a, it's an obvious case where you've got one biological organism and two persons. Um, and furthermore, I'm bothered by imagining that they're thinking of the biological organism aspect of them as only being below the neck. 
I mean, that's another part of the problem in thinking about the Hensel twin case. And so it, it's not that I have a good response to the Hensel twin case. I don't. But on the other hand, I don't, I don't think that, that the kind of analysis that Jeff wants to give or you would want to give on the, to the Hensel twin case is obvious either. And again, this raises an issue that is, uh, um, deserves a lot of thought. What else can I say? Um, there are going to be other kinds of funny kinds of cases. I mean, one, one sort of uh, case that doesn't get talked about too much in the literature, but we don't want to make it just a case of ending the lives of persons because it would, it would turn out that uh, sometimes when psychiatrists treat multiple personality disorder, um, they're killing a person uh, by their treatment, and that just seems very odd. Okay, let's just take one more question maybe before. Was there one down here? Yes? Well, thank you. Sorry, I've got to decide one of you. Not just my moral intuition. I think it's everybody's, well, isn't it? Or I mean, it surely is the standard view. Might, might well be. That's right. That's true. It might well be, and it might. But 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 you see, I I can give an account of the moral intuition in terms of a general account of the wrongness of killing. It's not just there's this moral intuition hanging out there bare naked. It's that there's, in a way, some, this, this fits in with a lot of other things. It certainly fits in with contemporary practice. I mean, if, you know, you get a note from your boyfriend. It's a, the Dear Alice note, and he says, I found Jenny, and I'm madly in love with her, and I don't want you to be a part of my life. And, and in a fit of despair, you drive your car into a brick wall, and uh, we, you end up in the emergency room, and we happen to know why you drove your car into the brick wall. I mean, we're, we're going to want to save you. Um, and uh, even though you didn't want to live, and you're not in a much of, and, and to the extent that you have a dispositional desire, uh, in this particular case, it's a dispositional desire not to live. Uh, you know, I, I, I think the burden is on people on the other side to, you know, in this in this particular case, to to explain why we we would reject standard practice. Okay, I do think uh, we, we've gone a little bit over, and there are I know several more questions people would like to ask, but I think we have to draw it to a close. Thanks very much. Thanks very much, John. Appreciate it.